This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Why is it so hard to be good? Ever wonder about that? Why is it so hard to be good? There are all kinds of questions like that in the Christian life. But you know, there's one question we have an answer to, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So why don't you take your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. We've been talking about the names of God, and today the name of God that we're going to concentrate on is the name Messiah. And embedded in this text is a real critical question. And like I said, it's nothing wrong with asking questions about God, who He is, what He requires of you, you know, uh, what He's like, and those kind of things. As long as we're prepared, as long as we're prepared to honestly consider the answers. You know, the problem today in America is not the fact that we're not asking questions. I think the problem today with Americans in the pace in which we run, the frenzy in which we go, is the lack of serious attention to the answers to those kind of questions. To really, to really think them through in such a way that they really grip us, the answers, and change our life. And as I said this morning in Matthew 11, we're considering the question of whether Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And I want you to know that Jesus, as you'll see in this text, He considered that a very serious question with a very serious life and death answer. Later when John the Apostle would write his little epistle of 1 John, he would put it this way, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. And whoever does not believe that is not. That last part stings a little. So the natural question that just kind of falls out, not superficially, is do you believe that Jesus is your Messiah? And has that really impacted your life as you've considered seriously that answer? The reason I say that here is because at the end of the service, I'm going to ask everyone that question and give some of you the opportunity to make that fresh commitment to Christ if you need to do that this morning. And if you've never seriously answered that question for yourself, you're among friends here. You know, whether you've substituted the answer for church or you've not really thought deeply about it, maybe you never even considered it at all. We had somebody in the first service that hadn't even thought about it before. This morning may be your morning, and I'm going to ask that at the end of the service, if you want to make that commitment or rededicate, that you come forward and do that publicly because Jesus said, if you can't do it publicly for me, it's probably not real faith at all. So that's what we're going to do at the end of the service. Now what we're going to do, what we're going to look at now is that pressing question that John the Baptist was asking Jesus at this particular time in John's life. And I want you to look at verse 1 as we pick it up there. Here's what he says. It says, and it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, that's a word that's used in the Old Testament of Messiah. They're the same words, Messiah and Christ. He sent word by His disciples and said to Him, 
Are you? Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now, <clears throat> that may shock you a little bit when you hear John asking that question because, you know, this is John the Baptist. This is the reed that wouldn't bend in the wind. This is the guy who was the firebrand, the one preaching repentance, the one showing the way to the Messiah. He had grown up with Jesus. He's related to Jesus. He knew Jesus' ministry and life, and he became the forerunner for Jesus to prepare the way so that people would adopt him into their life as the expected one. But now here he is in an about face. And we wonder, what's going on here? And why was he so confused about this issue now? And why did he use this term expected one instead of the term Messiah? Well, before answering that question, I think we need a context. I want to give you a context about the development of the title Messiah from the Old Testament through the New Testament here for just a moment. And uh, we want to look at that by looking on your outline. And you can kind of fill in a few things as we go along with your outline to kind of show you that evolutionary development of this title Messiah. First, let's look at the Old Testament age, because this was the age of messianic expectations. And you know, when I went through the Old Testament this week, one of the things that I found interesting, because I'm so used to the word Messiah, that I got in the Old Testament and discovered that it's hardly ever used. In fact, it's only used one time in the whole Old Testament. There were much more popular titles for Jesus or for the Messiah in the Old Testament. Seed of Abraham, Son of David, the Son of Man, my servant, the righteous branch, the prince of peace. If you were an Old Testament Jew back in, back in those days, you wouldn't even probably consider Messiah. You would consider these terms as far as the ones that you would call Him by. But they all spoke to the expected one. All those terms spoke to the expected one everywhere. Indeed, most scholars feel it's fair to say that the whole Old Testament was nothing more than a gigantic preparation for the coming of the expected one. In fact, Orthodox Jews to this day still have over 465 passages that they look to waiting right now for their Messiah. I want to sample a few of those texts for you, just to give you a feel for what's there. First of all, I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And when you turn there, some of you already know that this is the chapter that deals with the fall of man. God has come and He's seen that Adam and Eve have listened to the serpent and taken the forbidden fruit and life has totally changed for planet earth forever. And we are affected to this day by it. And He curses each of them for their participation in this heinous crime. First the, the serpent, then the woman, then the man. <clears throat> and so first He comes to the woman in verse 14 I mean the serpent in verse 14, and he says, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And then he says this, and I will put strife or enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And then all of a sudden we get this third party introduced into the equation. He shall bruise, the, the Hebrew word literally means crush. He shall crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. You shall injure him, but he's going to crush you. And the question is, if you were just a novice in the Scriptures reading through the opening pages of the Bible and you came to this, you'd go, well, who's this he 
Well, that's the beginning, the very beginning point of this age of messianic expectations. Now, I want to give you a few other ones, and you want to look these up in the Bible. We'll just throw them up on the screen. But first of all, let's look over in Isaiah chapter 9. Here's what it says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And so you begin to flesh out who this he is that's crushing evil. You say, he's going to crush evil. He's also going to have a government, a reign of peace. Then you move over into Isaiah 52 and 53 and you read these words. Behold, my servant. That was the more popular title for the Messiah in the Old Testament. My servant will prosper. He will be on high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. That is, just as many people are astonished at what happens in Israel. So his appearance, uh, so will they be astonished at you, my people. So his appearance will, was marred more than any man and his form more than, in, than the sons of men. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. You mean the one who's going to crush the evil one? He was crushed? Oh yeah. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the bruise on the hill. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourgings we are healed. All of a sudden we get a whole different perspective of this He in Genesis. Not just going to have a government, but He is going to be marred by our unrighteousness. That's who the He is. As we move through the Old Testament, you come to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says it this way, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for, for David a righteous branch. That's what Messiah was known in. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. So he's going to help Israel secure a place of safety and he's going to crush evil. He's going to have a government. Then it goes on and tells us even where he's going to be born in the prophet Micah. He says this, But it's for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. Huh. He's a ruler, but he's already been acting long ago. How long? From the days of eternity. And this one will be our peace. Wow. We're building a whole case for the expected one. Now I want you to look over in Daniel chapter 9 where there is the one instance where the term Messiah is used. It's a spectacular prophecy. One of the most spectacular in all the Bible. And I tell you, this is incredible stuff here. Daniel 9, it says, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, that is Israel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. 70 weeks. What is a week? Well, in Hebrew, the word week means seven. It refers to seven years. And seven years in the Old Testament were not like our solar years, 365 days a year, but they were Jewish years of 360 days a year. They're shorter. So it says 70 sevens, 490 Jewish years, have been declared for my people Israel. They're on a time clock. This is one of the most fantastic prophecies in all of Scripture. 
And then it says in verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay, that's when you can start the clock, until Messiah the Prince, there's the first usage of Messiah in the Old Testament, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, 69 weeks. So 69 of the 70 on this time clock start the moment the decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem. And then from that point, there will be 69 weeks until Messiah comes. And notice in verse 26, and Messiah then will be cut off. It doesn't say what cut off means, but you can kind of imagine what cut off means, right? Well, 69 weeks in that sense was 483 Jewish years. But now we're operating by solar years. That's our calendar. So that would be 476 solar years. Now, when was the decree issued to rebuild Jerusalem? Well, we know that from, not the Bible, but we know that from history. The great historian Herodotus tells us when the decree was issued from his Greek histories. He was the father, by the way, of history from his histories when that decree was issued. It was issued March 14th, 445 B.C. So if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., when the decree was issued, and then move 476 solar years, just like it says here in Daniel, then we should know when Messiah, would, the prince, would come and be cut off. So if you add those to that 445, you know what you come up with? 32 A.D. 32 A.D. Now, there's more detail to that than what I've just given you. But let me tell you, if I were just an unbelieving pagan and somebody could show me this kind of stuff in the Scripture, I would have to pause, especially when I knew Daniel's writing here, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, predicting an event far outside His control when Messiah would come and be cut off. I, I would just have to pause and go, that's got to be supernatural. Just like where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. That's the messianic expectations of the Old Testament. And that's why the Jews, even to this day, still look for a Messiah using these same Scriptures, but the blindness is over their eyes. It's very difficult for them to come to the conclusion that just for us seems so obvious. What happened to Messiah, though? That's the picture of Messiah of the Old Testament, but then we move into another age. Notice on your outline, it's the intertestamental age, the time between the Old and New Testament. There was a 400-year gap between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And this period could accurately be defined as the age of messianic confusion. Okay? The age of messianic confusion. Now, why confusion? Because it was here that the idea of Messiah became reinvented overly politicized. Yes, the Messiah would be a ruler, but man, if you'd lived for 400 years under Greek and Roman domination, that's the only word you would want to hear is ruler, right? You wouldn't want to hear about him being marred. You wouldn't want him to hear that he was just a servant, that he was just a branch of righteousness, that he was this or that in that suffering kind of way. So during that intertestamental period, the Jews began to amplify and even exaggerate what the Old Testament said about the Deliverer who's to come. He became embellished where he was totally a king. A king with an army, a king with weapons, a king who would overthrow Rome, a king who would set up Israel as the greatest show on earth. Let's don't call him servant. Let's certainly not call him Prince of Peace. We want a military ruler. 
Now, righteous branch and servant doesn't say that, so they took an obscure word, Messiah, and they took that word and they built all that meaning into it during this intertestamental age. So Messiah, suddenly during this intertestamental time, became the predominant word for the expected one. And all that new meaning was breathed into that word. And that's how Messiah got to be a political term of military might, and that's also how Messiah got to be the only term used in the New Testament age for the coming deliverer. Now that's what sweeps into our Bibles, is this exaggerated military ruler for the expected one. Now that brings us to the New Testament age. Okay, and I want to break down the New Testament age for you for just a moment. For the Gospels, first of all, that was a time of messianic clarification. That's exactly where we are right now in our Matthew passage. It's a time where that term needed to be cleared up, and that's why Jesus rejected the term Messiah, because he didn't want to be associated with it. It also tells us why John used the word expected one. Because he, he knew it was too politically a hot potato. So he stayed away from it. He used expected one. But where did John's doubt come from? Because in this time of messianic clarification, as we'll see, John knew he'd be a servant and he would suffer and those kind of things, but John also knew the Old Testament and he kept seeing those terms ruler and king and the judgment of God with the Messiah. And so he expected Jesus to be much more powerful than he was. In fact, when John preached in preparing the way for the Messiah, he talked about Messiah's judgment. The axe is already laid at the tree. And when Jesus came, even though he was a in some ways the Messiah had expected, when Jesus didn't follow through and become more powerful, a God of righteous indignation, a Messiah of, of deliverance in the sense of judgment, then John began to go, maybe I missed it. Maybe I missed it. So the Gospels are a time of messianic clarification. Then we move into the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it became a time of messianic proclamation because after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples, of course, were convinced that Jesus really was the expected one. And they had no problem using the term Messiah. So when you open up the book of Acts and start reading, something happens that hadn't happened anywhere in the Gospels. Suddenly they start boldly, publicly proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at Acts 2. For instance, in Acts 2 it says it this way, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, that's Peter standing up in front of this mob in Jerusalem who's threatening to kill him. But he stands there and says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. He's the Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And then as they begin to span out over the world, notice how their message gets even stronger in Acts 5. They say, they went through on their way from the presence of the council who had you know, beat them up and thrown them out of town, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, every day, every day, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And they preached it so hard and so relentlessly that by the time you get to Acts 11, the people hearing that over and over look at the disciples and they go, these have got to be Messiah's people. You know what the definition of Messiah's people is in Greek? Christian. That's why we're called Christian. Because we've become Messiah's people. We've been so identified with the Messiah, we become Christ's people. That's what happened in the book of Acts. And then you move into the epistles. And the epistles, I call this the time of messianic fusion. The time of messianic fusion. Now what do I mean by time of messianic fusion? 
I mean that when you start reading through the epistles, for the first time something starts happening. And that is every time Jesus' name is used, it's also coupled with Christ. You know, His name was Jesus. But now it becomes Jesus Christ. Not Jesus the Christ, just Jesus Christ. They become one. His name. Jesus Christ. And it's used that way all the way through the rest of the Bible. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, you get to the last time where you're prophesying to the future, and that's the age or the time of Messianic Expectation Part 2. And when you get to Part 2 in the book of Revelation, you start reading about the Messiah that fulfills all the other things Messiah would do. Judgment, wrath, kingship, ruler, crushing evil. You know, up until this time, Jesus hadn't fulfilled what Genesis 3 spoke about, about crushing His head. But let me, let me tell you, you read the book of Revelation. At the second coming of Christ, He crushes Satan. He fulfills the prophecy that was made of Himself back in Genesis chapter 3. And then He becomes what everybody hoped He would become. Judge, ruler, righteous leader of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, all that's probably a lot more than you ever wanted to know, right? About Messiah. But I think it helps answer the question that John's asking here back in Matthew chapter 11 where all these prophecies and development of Messiah took place. But until the future moment in history occurs when Jesus exchanges His shepherd's staff for His king's scepter, the best and most accurate definition of Messiah is the one that Jesus now gives in verses 4 and 5 in response to John's question, are you the expected one? And notice what He says. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news, the gospel, preached to them. Now I want to make some observations about that answer because it's not as direct as you want it to be, but it, it says a lot about who Messiah is. The first observation is this. Verse 5 combines two Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. You notice some of you have that capitalized print. <clears throat> there are two prophecies from the Old Testament. One in Isaiah 35, which takes us up to the place where it says, and the dead are raised up. You can put a slash there. Everything before that slash is Isaiah 35. And then the last line is a quote from Isaiah 61.1. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. A second important observation is that both of these two Old Testament quotes both speak to the Messiah as He will be, who He really is until Revelation, His second coming. And here's the definition. When you hear the word Messiah for, for us all the way to the end, what Messiah means is deliverer. That's the term you ought to hear with the word Messiah. And there's two kinds of deliverance spoken about in verse 5. And I think they're pretty obvious to see if you look at them because when you have that little slash mark, the first is there's physical deliverance. Do you see it there? It says that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. So on your outline, put the first deliverance is a physical deliverance. Okay? The second deliverance, which we'll look at more intimately here in a moment in Isaiah 61, is a spiritual deliverance. The poor have the good news preached to them. So when you think of deliverance and you think of Messiah, think of two kinds of deliverance because they apply to us today. Physical and spiritual. That's what's wrapped up in that term, 
Messiah. So let's look at the first, the physical deliverance. You know, everywhere Jesus went, He healed people. Disease fled from Him. And most often when that happened and people were amazed, Jesus would point out the reason that was occurring. He would say that those physical maladies that were fleeing before Him was His way of giving the people of His day proof that He was in fact the Messiah because nobody could do the things He was doing. Nobody could raise the dead. But He did it. So He said, it's sons of who I am. Listen to Him in John 10. He says, the Jews gathered around Him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, then tell us plainly. <laughs> yeah, tell us. Here's how Jesus answered. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name, these miracles you've just seen, these healings, the works that I do in my Father's name, don't you know it's these that bear witness of me? There's your answer. These bear witness. They're the proof. Now, probably some of you are saying, well, now are you saying Jesus is healing physically today? Well, in my experience as a pastor for 30 years, yeah, He does. From time to time, Jesus does heal physically. The problem with even stating that though is the mass of charlatans that gather around that. And much of the healings that take, quote, take place today, I don't believe are authentic. I believe that we exaggerate them and promise more than uh, actually occurs. But I do believe there are places where Jesus will heal people. But I want you to listen to me closely. There is one physical deliverance that He's promised everyone in this room. It's right here in the text. There's one physical deliverance, and it's the most important physical deliverance, and He's going to do it for every person who names the name of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And here's what it is. Look at verse 5. He will deliver all who believe in Him from dead, from death. It says the dead are raised up. You know, when I read that, it suddenly dawned on me as I look back at Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 deals with all these things about the lame and the blind and the deaf, but it doesn't mention the dead. This is the one thing that Jesus adds to these Old Testament, two Old Testament prophecies. He, he says, let me just add one other feature about me. The dead are going to be raised up. And that's my offer of deliverance to everyone here. Now having read that, there's some good questions. Serious questions to ask. First of all, do you know any religious leader in human history other than Jesus Christ who has claimed physical deliverance over death and improved it? Do you know of anyone? Are not all the world's great religious leaders to be found in a grave save one? Why is that? You know, <clears throat> last week at the end of men's fraternity, I sat in the front and engaged Marlon Howe in a conversation. <clears throat> and we sat and talked. And he told me what an incredible thrill it was week after week to stand in front of this great body of men and be their teacher. So that was one of the high points of his life. And then the next day, to know that he was gone. What an incredible shock. Because he was a good friend. And he meant a lot, a lot to our church. He's gone. And I have no answer for that. But you know one thing I am excited about? Because that would be such a tragedy that would just completely exhaust me if it were not for what we just read. Because 
Marlon knew the answer to the question, what happens to me at death? And here's the question for you. Do you? Do you? Are you do you have a certain certainty about what happens to you at death? Now I know we've grown up in the church and we've heard about going to heaven and all those kind of things. But often we race so fast we never take it to heart seriously except in a moment of crisis. But do you really know what your future is? That's the question. Do you know what happens to you when you die? Are you confident of that? Or do you do like a lot of people, ignore it, or do even worse what a lot of people that Time Magazine polled, they just simply assume they're going there. 95% of all Americans think they're going to heaven. They have questions about their friends. You know, when they ask, are your friends going to heaven, it plummets. But when they ask, are you going to heaven, everybody assumes they are. In blind optimism, as if it were another right guaranteed by the Constitution. I want you to listen to this. Because see, what was going on here was serious stuff. And what I just asked is really serious stuff. So serious that if not answered correctly, could lead you to the ultimate tragedy of your life. That's how serious this is. Don't assume anything. Listen, if you're just kind of thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm part of a church and everything's going to be okay, I want you to know every major religion of the world says at least at this point they all agree. And that is that you cannot expect as a right to be in the presence of God. Every major religion in the world says the same thing. And that is that there are some requirements for eternity. And please don't move to eternity with blind optimism because you'll be bitterly disappointed for an eternity. Don't do that. The Scripture says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his own soul? That's serious stuff. Because you can lose it. And then Jesus stands there and says, and this is where He steps out of all the religions of the world, He steps out alone and says, and you know what? Only I am the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer over death. I'm the only one. I'm the only one you can trust. I'm the answer. Now the question is, are you asking a serious question? What happens to you when you die? Are you the expected one, John asks, and Jesus replies, go and report to John the dead. The dead are raised up because Messiah means physical deliverance. Secondly, Messiah means spiritual deliverance in this life right now. Notice the last line of verse 5. It says, the poor have the good news preached to them. What does that mean? Well, I want you to turn back to Isaiah 61 because it defines what that means. So turn back real quickly. I know we're looking at a lot of Scriptures, but Isaiah 61 answers that question. It fleshes it out, so to speak. Because here's how it's stated there. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is speaking of the expected one. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Now, afflicted is the same word as poor. Now He's going to define who the poor are. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. That last line really literally is stated in Hebrew 
and for the bound, a way out. That's what he's going to do. And I think when you read that passage, you realize that poor does not mean an economic class, a social strata of life. Poor here is speaking to all of life because you can be rich and brokenhearted, can't you? And a lot of rich people are really brokenhearted because life has not turned out the way they thought with their money. You can have the success you've always wanted, but you've found that now you're a captive of the compromises that you made on the way up. And now you're like that last second line of people. You're a captive. Or maybe you got married and you married the dream of your life, but that dream has turned to a nightmare and now you feel bound in that relationship and you don't think you have any way out. You see, life, this life makes us poor. It beats us down. It causes us to become weary and tired. And that's what Jesus meant when He meant, call, said the word poor, that they had, He had good news for them. I want you to know over this auditorium, there are poor people sitting with us today. Hurting, captive, feeling hopeless. But what Jesus says here in Matthew 11, He says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. To those who are brokenhearted. Maybe they're brokenhearted because of a death. Maybe they're brokenhearted because of a divorce. Maybe they're brokenhearted because of a failure in their life. Maybe they're being held captive by something like a habit or a way of life or guilt or fear or a sense of worthlessness. Maybe they're feeling bound up in life because of a job or a marriage or the golden handcuffs of reaching the top and realizing they can't leave because they need the money, but they hate what they're doing. Feeling bound up in that regard and life has become stale. That's what poor means. But now here's the real question and it's a very, very serious question. How is it ever going to change? How is it ever going to be different unless you have somebody uniquely qualified to help you out? That's the question. Are you the expected one? John asked. And Jesus says, go and report to John. Go and tell him the good news that the brokenhearted can be restored. You know, this last week I came across this little New Testament. I didn't even know what it was until I opened it up and suddenly I kind of like had a flashback to a point in time. And I realized that this was the Bible that I gave my dad after the family separated my mom and dad and urged her to divorce him. And I came into that situation. It was a very tumultuous situation. My mom had given up on the marriage and my dad didn't know what he was doing. And so I walked in into his poverty and I preached the good news. I'd done it before and he hadn't even looked at me. Wouldn't even respond to me. But on this particular night, he received Jesus Christ. And thus became, began a process of hope for him. And he asked me, what do I do now? And you know, at that point, I wasn't really sure what to do. But what I did do is I gave him this little New Testament. And here's what it said. Daddy, I know that you want to live. And here are the words of life. Read them. Study them. Give yourself to them. And give yourself to the ways of God. And then I wrote with an underline, and He will restore you. The brokenhearted. You know, He restored that marriage. At 70 years, He restored that marriage. He put it back 
together, something that other people thought absolutely impossible. But that's because Jesus is a spiritual deliverer. He can restore the brokenhearted. He can cause for the captives to find release. He can bring for those who are bound. He can, no matter how much you think you have no hope, Jesus Christ can give you a way out. He can give you a way out. Messiah means spiritual deliverance in this life. For all those who believe so strongly and so publicly in Him that they're willing to let go of their way of life so that they can receive a new, new way of life. That's the Gospel. Now let's go back to Matthew 11 just for one moment and I want to conclude it by looking at verse 6. It says there, and in this verse 6 is one of those Beatitudes outside the Sermon on the Mount. One of those rare Beatitudes. But notice verse 6 it says, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, here's one of those kind of rare instances where I think it's not a healthy translation. This is a little awkward here of the original Greek. The word stumble just simply means to be scandalized by, to be offended, to be put off, to be repelled by. And many times when the word stumble was used in the New Testament, it was also used with unbelief. It was used of Jesus being out in His hometown of Nazareth and they wouldn't believe in Him and, they said, and He said to them that they had stumbled over Him because of their unbelief. And He used stumble with unbelief. used it together. So when you put those two together and that idea, really here's what I think Jesus is saying literally. You can fill it out on your outline. Here's what it says. Blessed is He who does not reject me in unbelief. I think that's what He's saying. Because let me tell you, if you reject me, John, in unbelief, there's serious consequences. Really serious consequences. But happy is the one who puts away that sense of, man, that's, that, that's, I've got to let go of my life. I've got to let go of control. I've got to throw myself off the cliff into faith. For the person who does that, here's what they find. Blessedness. They find physical deliverance. The hope of it. They find spiritual deliverance for their hurting heart, for their sense of captivity, for their lack of not having any way out. Now why do I say that? Because that brings me back to the question. And the question is, do you know that Jesus as your Messiah? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for this morning. Thank You for the, uh, the work that You've done in people's hearts. It's the hardest work of all because it's relinquishing control. It's coming to the place where you say you can't do it, and yet that's the most blessed place of all because in that submission, we invite you in to lead, to be Lord, and to love us as we are. So I thank you for those who've come. Now, Father, may you go with us we who name the name of Messiah, we who are called Messiah's people, Christians, may You go with us and help us to proclaim Him boldly in a world that needs Him desperately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.